from the big discussion, this really came about that we could see that um, people want to get there but didn't really know how to get there. And one of the things that you guys did really well, you got people to try and self-diagnose. Right. But the problem is people need a little bit of structure trying to go from something that's structured to something that's unstructured. And that's, that's what we would have a chat about because that's that's all the thought we've been putting into to it. How do we, how do we, what does a good person look like in learning teams? Hello everybody, I'm Todd Donkon, this is the Pre-Accident Podcast. Welcome on board. I'm glad you're here today. Hey, 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 this is the great podcast. This is kind of the lost episode. It's not really a lost episode in that I had to do a lot of work to get it to sound good enough for us to hear it. <clears throat> my bad. It's entirely my fault. I'll have to take all the heat for this. It's all me. So blame me like crazy if you want to. But you're going to meet about Brent and Glennis. Now, you've, you've met Brent Sutton before because Brent's been on the podcast. In fact, he talks about a little uh, in his, uh, his introduction that we actually did at the end of the podcast that I moved to the front of the podcast. What they're really going to talk about are learning teams. And uh, this is kind of exciting, I think, just because learning teams, I, yeah, I'm not sure this is a especially bold or original idea, but it's interesting in the safety community that we've come to them. Um, it, 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 other, other things, I think, look at these. Other things realize the workers have expertise. I think it's really an artifact of the fact that we believe safety happens to workers and that the worker is the problem to be fixed. And so, therefore, to fix the worker, we tell the worker what to do to be better. And we've learned, gosh, we've been using them forever. When we started learning teams, we coined that phrase learning team at Los Alamos. Chris and I, uh, my boss Chris and I, actually sort of made this up because we had an especially interesting event, a real information-rich event that didn't have a high consequence, but it could have had a horrific consequence. You could call it a near miss, um, but it wasn't a near miss because no controls really took took effect. We, we didn't really have any control over this at all. It just happened to us, and we, we lucked out. You know, we, nothing bad happened. We got together in the hallway in front of my office, which was also next to the men's room, just in case you're wondering. That's if you ever go there, that's you'll go to the men's room across the halls of my office. And Chris and I were talking, and Chris said to me, he said, I wish there was a way we could just bring these workers together and just talk to them. And I said, well, <laughs> there's always a way to do that. That's easy. Let's make it happen. And he said, okay, let's try that. Let's, let's not take a traditional investigatory approach. Let's just put a team together and learn from them. And I said, okay, it's done. And, of course, the long story becomes a short story when I tell you it was one of the more rewarding things we'd ever done because it had such an amazing impact on the outcome. We got more data quicker and more information better than we'd ever received it before, hands down. I mean, just hands down. And the people who were a part of the learning team really felt empowered and engaged and really helped us create, uh, quite honestly, an incredibly complete understanding of the failure and an incredibly effective way to move forward. And what's amazing about this, this event that I'm, I'll have to tell you the whole event story, but we, we had what could have been an incredible electrical event and our corrective action was to actually put our postdoc and graduate student programs so that they had 
a line of supervision. They didn't really have a clear line of supervision. They didn't really have bosses per se, which is not uncommon in a research facility because you, you have you have your your principal investigators. You have the you have the researchers with which you work, but they really aren't your boss. They're your peer in a way. And so what was interesting is we had this event, we brought these people together, and what we fixed was really our HR system. And that, that's an amazing and, and pretty poignant part of the story. I mean, that's really valuable and made a huge difference for us. And we just started doing them galore, which is French for a lot. And that has just spun off into a, a, an amazing story uh, told everywhere. I mean, just simply told everywhere. It's, it's remarkable. And one of the places that's really picked up on these, uh, Brent and Glennis are going to talk about this, is they're using them a lot in New Zealand, and they've thought about them kind of the next level above. So you're going to hear phrases like uh, co-create, the teams co-create, and that groups actually are better at generating problem statements than individual people are because of bias and and point of view and, and, and the things they talk about. It's a really interesting podcast. So let's get into it. I think you're going to find it. It's, it's quite a conversation. It's much more academic than um, as other podcasts are, but it's really academic in a comfortable way. And I want you to really notice the difference between Brent and Glennis. Um, and, and you'll see that. And they really come to this story in a much different way. And that's pretty valuable. So without much more ado, this is the Missing Podcast. It's, it's up and on the air and ready for you to listen to. This is a discussion of advanced learning using team-based learning approach. Here we go. Um, introduce you guys itself. <laughs> it seems like we should do that at some point. You go first. Well, look, I mean, this is my second outing. No, you've been on the podcast twice. Yeah, yeah. which is which is fantastic. The third time you get a free sandwich, <laughs> so, but I have to put well, your car. Well, the, the third time will be in New Mexico. So obviously, the first time was opposite the House of Dank. That's right. The in House Denver. of Dank. You can't. Yeah, that's not um, but you know, just just briefly, um, you know, 17 years I've been uh, involved in managing the risk of human misery, and um, you know, really involved in when things go really really bad. And I've been actively using uh, learning teams for the last two years, and I have seen the difference it makes with people in really really bad situations. Yeah, yeah. really really bad. Um, we use a slightly different. Um, approach in that we call it a triangle and the triangle, the three parts is made up of how the organisation thought things were being done, we've got how work was actually being done but the third part is what was the industry norm Okay. Yeah. or what was the notion of reasonably practicable Right. Right. and because it's a criminal process or a regulatory process we need to understand those three parts because the gap in the middle or the void or in some cases the chasm is the liability that the person or the organisation faces. But but using learning teams to understand work is done becomes really, really important in that way. But I'm very fortunate because in the previous co- podcast we mentioned Glynis. Right, yeah. This, we've been looking forward to this for a year. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and, of course, we, we politely call this the menage a trois of podcasts. That's right, that's right. Uh, politely. Politely, of course, that. because I think Jay Allen recently talked he's going to do an R-rated podcast. I know. So I'd like to say that we're the first. 
He wants to do dirty safety podcast. Sign me off for that one, okay? Yeah, I just, it seems like, okay. Yeah. Um, hello, my name is Glynis. Um, I work with Brent, as, as we've established. Um, I have, I suppose it's, I've got a very different background. I've come through from adult education, so I spent a lot of time with this. I'm really comfortable with this idea of co-construction. I'm really comfortable with the idea that actually I don't have to hold all of the expertise. And the people that I work with and work alongside hold an equal value in terms of their expertise and that together actually we can pull that together and harness it and make something greater than of the individual um, so I suppose that's sort of where Brent and I kind of come together a lot of his posh words come from me nice yeah all the posh words god bless you yeah. god bless you for doing that. so now's when the actual podcast started which actually started earlier but uh, I had to bring it in later. This is how it happens. We start talking, and then I forget the introduction. So here's the actual body of the podcast. Oh, that's a great... I mean, and, and how did I get there? That's, that's a good topic. It's a really good topic. Leading on from our earlier topic around competency, this is now saying, what does a competent learning team's person look like? Okay. In this new world. Yeah, in the world as we're creating it. As we're, without weaponizing. Right. Because that's the scary part, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, because you can easily... You can easily weaponize it just by making yeah. it. Um, so we've been putting a lot of thought into why people weaponize. Right. So why do they? Because they... Oh. We started? No. Yeah. Oh, no, no. So we'll, we'll, we'll do it properly. Oh, no, we'll start. I'm just capturing this part. So why do people weaponize? Um, because they're simply making use of the skills that they have in this new world. So if they're not going to gain your skills, then how do they get the best from the skills that they hold? Right. And doing that. Right. So uh, we've seen the same thing with root cause analysis. Uh, some people will use it a very considered way. Some people will treat it like a sieve. They pour something in the top, they shake it, and whatever pulls, pulls through is what they then decide on. And I think if you're using a structured approach, often that actually acts like a funnel. So it's actually forcing people to make an outcome right. in, a, in a prescribed way. And actually, I think that's where the weaponization comes in. Because actually, people are following something, and they know that the output has to be, there's an element of the person that's done something, right. and, and there's something in the system that's not gone quite the way that it should do. And for many organizations to accept that the system is not working as well as it should, that forces them back over to the person. That's pretty painful, right? I mean, yeah. it's painful for the organization. And that taxonomy, when you create those categories... So my guess is that we weaponize because we measure. And we measure because we think that we have to measure things. So so measurements make us look at systems retrospectively and either wish we'd done more, better, or different. And then what you're saying, which I think is quite brilliant, is that when we put them in taxonomies, when we when we when we create these categories, that force function is really simplification, and it probably stops learning. Mm, most definitely, because you're trying to apportion something, then aren't you? And effectively, you're apportioning blame. Yeah. And and most organisations can't bear the idea that the system that they spent so much time creating has actually got holes in it. So therefore, it forces you back to say that the individual is the, the bit that has got the deficit to it. What's the difference between the word blame and the word cause? Mm. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> mm. I, th I think that that's something you could kind of tease out, doesn't it? I think it depends which side of the fence you're standing on. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's, so it's whose lens are you using yeah. to actually look at that? 
I think the individual would say there's a whole lot of blame going on. Yeah, oh, for sure. Mm. Absolutely. So we're asking people to move from an intervention method, which is what they've been used to, and they've been the the problem solver, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And we're asking them now to move in this new world where they're seen as a facilitator, not a problem solver. And we ask them to actually use a, a what we call a humanized method of gathering information rather than an intervention. So we're asking people to move from it where the person's at the center and you work your way up to the system right. to saying that the system's now in the center and you work your way out to the person. Either way, there are bias because whatever's in the center is where your bias will be focused. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, our belief is that with learning teams, by having the system as the bias, then it humanizes people's participation. And what we find, with, with particularly with learning teams, uh, that, that the fact is it's, there's a lot of restorative component that exists with a learning team. So it's allowing people to reflect. It's allowing people to see things through different eyes rather than them being placed at the center in that way. But if the person running the learning team doesn't have some good skills that could turn into a disaster. Absolutely. Yeah. So what are those skills? What have you decided those skills need to be? Is that a good way to ask that question? What skills? What skills do you need to encompass? Yes, thank you. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm just running right now on just taco joy. That's that's the fuel that's fueling me is the joy of taco. So so what skills are you looking for? What, what skills do you help create and facilitate? Yeah, well, look, I mean, we actually, um, Vinus and I spent quite a bit of time having a look through this, and we, we came up with a bit of a chart. And, and like everything else, we, we, we had to understand where people are coming from and then look at where they're trying to go to to Got understand yeah, what yeah. is that gap or yeah. you call it drift. That's right. Or, or you meet, yeah. you meet I, I think that's important because you meet people where they are. Yes. So you need to know where they are in order to help them get to where they want to go. Yes, and, and people want to identify a gap. They don't want to be waterboarded. Right. So most training is, let's pull water on you. Yeah. Let's see what soaks in. Yeah. And if it doesn't work again, we'll pull some more water right. on you. We'll, we'll give probably. the training louder. Yeah. This this will be louder training. Yeah. So what's really interesting is that even with learning teams, we're asking people to fit the system. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, which is quite... I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we're asking to fit. So, so when we think about someone who's come from that whole investigative approach and how they've approached it, for them it's highly systematic. And they have amazing knowledge and understanding what is the process and how to derive an outcome. And they ask very open probing and clarification questions. Right. They're very detail-oriented, and they test assumptions. But in reality, they're deciding the apportionment of blame between people and the failure of the system. Okay. That's the objective. So, And, and that really is kind of the objective of a classic root cause analysis. Yes. So you're looking for... Yeah. The broken component, whatever component means, you pull that out, you deconstruct everything in the system, you deconstruct it very systematically, right? You have a method by which you deconstruct yeah. it. You fix the broken component or fix blame to the broken component, you fix cause to the broken component, and then you're done with the investigation. Okay, that's good. I'll give you that. But the, um, the, the, How's the that contrast being... with learning? Absolutely. Um, 
Because the learning team's approach is the person needs to understand the purpose. Uh, why are we doing this? Rather than what are we doing? So it focuses more around the, the philosophy in that area. And they need to be able to inspire others to communicate at the same time. They need to be able to capture and summarise the information. But more importantly, they need to put the information into some form of sequence. Because the information is coming in a very unstructured brainstorming type approach. And they need to identify what is known and what is not known at the same time. They need to be able to verify its accuracy. But when they ask questions, they need to be able to ask things that are reflective. So rather than seeking clarification, they need to ask reflective questions because it's the person telling the story is what we're wanting to reflect right. on rather than what I'm hearing in that environment. And they need to keep the group moving forward. Yeah. That's really, really important. Um, particularly, you know, sometimes when emotion starts to come in, you need to get that group going forward. And that means they need to understand that group dynamic. And to be reflective, to understand that gap between work is done and work is thought. So, so to be reflective in that, not to try and problem solve why, but to simply understand that it is, it is present. And that's where empathy comes in a lot. You've got to show lots of empathy, which is to really simply um, accept um, how the other person feels without trying to judge them in that process. But in essence, we're asking someone to go from a highly structured environment right. to an unstructured right. environment. And that's where weaponization then comes in. And when we were at the big discussion, it was a classic one. People kept saying, where are the tools? Yeah. Why can't we have a tool? To us, they're basically saying, we have no way of moving between this world and that world because we can't see how to actually do that. Right. Whereas I believe you can actually achieve both worlds and you can flow between the worlds once you've built those types of right. skills. So tell me more about this. I'm, I'm curious. Keep going. Um, the, th the point that I would make is that when you're following a methodology, the methodology becomes your pathway or, or right. your roadmap. Right. When you're looking at a learning team, what you're, what the, where you have to put your trust is that actually there is a value in co-constructing. Right. So there is a trust that the people that you're working with, so the people that are participating in that learning team, are equal contributors, so that, that people bring expertise and that you get the value of that because the expertise is through multiple lenses. Um, so I think then that that requires a different skill set than when you are following a predetermined pathway. That predetermined pathway has very obvious milestones which kind of alert you that you're in the right direction. When you're doing it with, uh, with a learning team, actually that skill set has to be held by the person right. who's facilitating it. And I think that that's why you either get a very good outcome from a learning team or you get a poor outcome from the learning team because it actually comes down to how well is it being facilitated. And that whole idea that Brenda's talked about, that you have to have a purpose. You have to have a shared purpose. It has to be well communicated because, again, everybody else that's participating in it, also they're used to this kind of predetermined roadmap. And so you're in this sort of space where it feels a little bit uncomfortable. But actually, once you can get beyond that and you can get to the point of co-construction so that actually you bring together this collective force, actually, I think you get, one, good learning. Right. But two, actually, I think you get much more of a permanence because what you do is you get buy-in. 
So again, if it's done well, the people that have been involved and the people that it's going to affect, potentially impact on in terms of, say, corrective actions, actually they get to see why those, how those things have come about. Whereas if you often ask workers that have been exposed to something that has gone astray, actually afterwards, not only do they carry a grief with them because something bad has happened to a friend or a colleague, but also a whole lot of changes happen. And actually often that's not well communicated. So that learning then doesn't become well entrenched. But this is an opportunity where it's based on trust and empowerment. You know, that you're empowering a group of people to say, right, this is what this is what's happened, this is where we've seen things to go wrong. Potentially at that point you bring in others with some other degrees of expert you know, expertise. Um, but then people get that opportunity to buy in right from the beginning. So I think that when Brent talks about that restorative component, I think that that's really strong. But also equally as strong, I think, is about the, uh, the retention of learning. Because I think often that retention of learning is lost. By the time the person has gone down that pathway, they are so far at the point of, of no return that actually they've almost forgotten what they were trying to do at the beginning. Is it, is it difficult to learn to to co-construct with a group? Is it difficult to do the things you guys are talking about? Is is the challenge... Is, is, I don't know how to ask this question without leading to... I really want to answer the question when I want to ask it, but... but we'll try answering it. I know. And, I'll, and we'll, uh, well, okay. I'll give you my opinion on yeah, it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, uh, to me, the first learning team, the first process of building an environment that co-constructs the story, story building as opposed to storytelling, might be scary and frightening and might be difficult to do. The fourth one gets easier. The tenth one, I mean, this is something that as a person who facilitates learning, you'll get really good at it. Absolutely. You hone a craft. Right. As you do when you're using a methodology. The first time you do one, presumably, yeah, it's a little bit rough and you learn as you go. There isn't really any difference on that front, I don't think. I think the difference really comes from it's your positioning or how you perceive it. So one, you put your trust in a predetermined methodology that's going to flow and you're going to go through these actions. The second, you put your trust that you actually have a skill set that will then capture the knowledge of a group. And, and then being able to communicate that, that knowledge back again so you can go through that verification right. process. But definitely I think it's a honed skill. Having said that, I think it's a skill that can be taught. How, so, would, how would we teach it? I think it's, it's about giving people an opportunity to do that practice. So just mm-hmm. as you've said, the first one's going to be a bit yeah. rough. So actually give people an opportunity to try it out and to, to sit in a slightly different position than when they are in control. Because I think that's where the nervousness comes in, is that when you go using a methodology, you're the person in control of it. You know where you're going with it. But actually, often the workers around you, they don't have that knowledge. So there's an imbalance of power. Swap it over now when if you're, if you're uh, managing or facilitating a learning team, now what you're doing is that you have to have trust that you actually you've got decent facilitation skills. And confidence that you can live with uncertainty, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, and that, to me, the challenge is, is that you don't know what the team will co-construct. You really don't. I mean, you go in with a purpose. I think the purpose statement you guys have made has been really important. You, you go in, but almost my biggest challenge in leading a learning team is to keep them out of solution. Mm. You know, the, what I always have to push back is that the, the team has a high need to fix the problem, and fixing the problem is not learning about the problem. But this idea of co-constructing this learning environment is really, really a, a powerful idea. What do we do with this? Where do we take it? 
Well, look, I mean, that, this is the best part because, um, you know, when, when I came back from the from the, uh, the big discussion, and like the big shout out to all my friends from Alabama, by the way. <laughs> uh, they, they won't be able to understand what you're saying. <laughs> I'll, 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 pick up, I'll pick up the Alabama bit anyway. Um, what, what we've been working on is we've been working on a um, um, a, uh, a learning team um, gap analysis wheel. Oh, great! So, so we think there are probably six to eight key capabilities or competencies that a person needs to hone their craft. And what we're working on at the moment um, is we're going to create um, three descriptors for each of these capabilities. And the person can choose the descriptor that best suits them. That will then show them where their gap is. That's a good idea. Because it's a simple scale. They can then see what we think good looks like. They can see where they are at, where they're at in that process, and then you can start to hone the craft to those areas that you need to improve on. That, and our commitment back to to this group, is that we're going to uh, make that um, public domain material for the community. Perfect. Okay. Um, and you know, from our perspective, like all these things, it needs feedback and it needs to evolve in its own way. But we think if there are six to eight things a person can focus on, they know what good looks like, they can start to move towards that. The next piece of work, which will take a little bit more effort, um, is going to be then to have some form of competency assessment. Or a diagnostic tool. Correct. So, so, that, so that a person can now know when they're applying that craft whether they're at that um, level or not to do that and it's no different I mean when people did investigations um, it was always important that your investigation was peer reviewed by someone else right well, vital actually correct I mean, in fact I can't imagine it's funny I talk to people I can't imagine doing an investigation without that peer review yeah it's just frightening on me we'll yeah. see lots of it I know and it's it just yes. seems like you're missing um, but a learning team itself is difficult to peer review right. in terms of the outcome but what you are, what you can peer review, is is how the person did the facilitation, how the person led, how they dealt with those types of things. Right. So, but that requires someone to have some type of prescribed standard they can then uh, peer review against in, in that way. And it might be worth, from a viewpoint of view, the first learning team you did, because I, I sort of dragged you in and just said, right, we're just doing one with an organisation and. You know, your own experience about how it felt quite uncomfortable, but then how just organic it become mm. based on your own um, skill set. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I take it back to what you've said, Todd. The very first time you do one, you're not quite sure what the output is. So you think, oh gosh, am I going in the right direction? Am I doing the right thing? You know, am I asking the right sort of questions? But actually, you soon start to learn that once you relax into the idea that you are there to facilitate and the others are there with expertise, actually, the role is relatively straightforward. And then all you're really doing is shepherding the conversation in a particular way. And you're asking the, the, the you know, how, how did you get from point A to point B? What are the things that have contributed to it? And I agree with you. The tension is always to jump to the solution. But actually, you need to explore how you got from point A to point B. That's really where the true value is. And certainly when I did it, I was working with a group of very skilled workers. 
um, but I also had management. So I got the best of both worlds. And actually, as we got into it, very quickly people started to see value from each side's perspective. And from me, from a from facilitation point of view, it actually then became quite a calming experience. Yeah. Yeah, whereas at the beginning it was like, oh, my gosh, I don't even know much about I didn't know anything about the piece of equipment that we were talking about or the tasks that they were doing. So I was thinking, there's no way I can add value here. Whereas you feel comfortable when you have a predetermined kind of structure to things. There is a degree of uncomfortability about this. And so that's where there is a craft. Yeah, and that's why ultimately people need to hone a craft just as they have done when they're using traditional models. Right. Do investigators make good learning team facilitators? I would. It would depend on the person's skill set. But you said something really important, and that is you don't really need to know about the piece of equipment. You don't even really need to know about the work. Your expertise is in helping groups co-construct this mm-hmm. this. Uh, Understand the explanation, the understanding of how they got to where they got to. Mm. That's remarkable. Yeah, so we think there's five key things. Okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, you know, we love we love five, five key things. One is um, how to navigate in an unstructured space. That's the first biggie. So for that, people, uh, that is a biggie, biggie. That is I mean, a biggie. That's a big. Uh, and now I'm talking about this from people that have been used to doing investigations. Yeah. And then how to derive learnings from that unstructured space becomes the next big issue for them. And how to develop those critical thinking skills. So that's where the whole reflective process right. come, comes in. Because um, that's something that you actually have to build right. in that sense. And then uh, having the capability to um, build joint understanding becomes the next part. And then lastly, the ability to relate at a parent-to-parent level. So using using kind of transaction analysis language. Well, it's more than that because in an investigation, the worker's presence is incidental. Yeah. Okay. The yeah, outcome is a, the outcome. Yeah, that's actually a really. Yeah. That's very true. I just never. I mean, you, that's pretty in your face way. You just said, but it's very true. You know, may like to be controversial. Yeah. But in a learning team, it can't happen without the workers. Yeah. So it's the difference between talking about and talking with. Yes. Right. That's yeah. interesting, though. The investigation, the worker's presence is it, it, it's into that. What's token? Yeah, I know. It's you're exactly right. Yeah. They're only present in there because it happened to them. Correct. So, yeah. yeah. And in a learning team, the learning can't happen if the, the experts and people who do the work aren't, aren't in place to do that. And, and that's why investigations, the person is at the center. And a learning team, the system's at the center. Yeah. No, everything you said is perfect. Yeah. And a good example, um, just this week I was working with a, a bunch of auditors who do ISO 45001, and we're having the chat about how to ask questions differently. And, you know, once again, the issue was that they're always placing the person at the centre. So it's the old classic one, you know, why was the guard missing? Rather than saying, how was the guard getting in the way of you doing successful yeah. work? Beautiful. Um, so it's, it's really, it's really, I mean, what was interesting is this bunch of auditors said that, that what Learning Teams does and what ISO 40001 is asking for is paramount because the new standard is about evidence-based. It's not about document-based. It's about proof of how things are really done. So they themselves are having to move between these two worlds in their own environment, and they're having to move from the world of, of um, sort of, you know, pass and fail to this world of conforming or not conforming. 
But either way, they have to have evidence of why you conform or evidence of why you don't conform. And the only way they can get that evidence is to engage with the work. Well, you have to see how work is done. Yeah, yeah, you have to know how work is done. And in order to do that, you have to be present. And that's vital. And so much of our learning is not done with workers. It's not people either actually not present or metaphorically not present with the workers. There's such a separation between those who do and those who know. Absolutely. And we're pushing learning teams into areas that have not been traditional, like we're using learning teams to do hazard ID. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, we, um, we, we've recently been involved in, in, in writing a, uh, a course around managing machinery risk. And uh, learning teams are at the heart of oh, that's great. doing hazard ID. That's great. And we've got three components. We've got a, a structured brainstorming component, which is what the learning teams is all about. We've got a, um, uh, an experiential gap analysis component in there as well, which is looking at you know, things that they've been managing things in the past. And their experiences, and then and then the last component um, is we've actually created a checklist component, but we're using the checklist as more of a reflective component because, luckily with machinery, um, there are only so many ways that energy can be released. Right, right. So if we know that there's a fixed means of releasing energy, then the checklist can become a reflective process. If we use the checklist at the beginning we would constrain people's ability to tell their stories and to share. But if we use it at the end, it helps to reflect back to make sure that we've captured that, that other component. And our experience is that there's about, you can get about 20% more information from a learning team through having that reflective checklist yeah. process. And that sounds quite interesting. And I don't know if I've got the right words, Glynis, but... But I, I call it that people have latent knowledge. So knowledge that they can't bring out unless they can align it with something. Right. So if the learning team, for instance, hasn't talked about supervision, what the supervision look like, whether it's useful or not, that doesn't come up, then that, that gets missed by the, right. by the team. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's yeah, that's, it, we don't talk about it. Yeah, and, and we all know that hazard ideas fraught at the best of times. Because no one can tell you when you've identified every single hazard. Yeah. Right. Because there is no list to, to and know. As, as complexity increases, yes. the potential for failure increases exponentially. So so we look at it to say, is, wouldn't it be good to know what that other 20% is, yeah. just in case it was important? Yeah, just in case we missed it. Yeah. yeah. Just in case it had value. Well, thanks for your time, you guys. This was this was quite remarkable. This is really good. And thank that you could come down to New Zealand and enjoy the experience. My pleasure. Thanks yeah. for the talk, And, and a big shout-out to the uh, the big L&P bottle. <laughs> the big L&P bottle. Thank you so much. And there you have the podcast. What do you think? Okay, the comment to the L&P bottle is while I was in New Zealand this year, there was a, a a village, a town in New Zealand that is famous for this soda, this lemon soda called L&P. And in the middle of the town, they have a giant bottle. And you know I love giant things. Either like giant things or miniature things. Those are things I like. And golf carts. Those are the three things I really love. And so they took a picture in front of the giant L&P bottle. And uh, it got on LinkedIn, as things like that do. And um, it was very interesting. It was a kind of an interesting study in sociology that, of course, all the, the New Zealand and Australian people knew who, what LNP was, so they commented on LNP. All the uh, 
European people thought it was a beer bottle and commented on the fact that that was a, a good-sized beer bottle for me. And uh, all the American people commented that they had bigger things in their town I should stand in front of to get my picture taken to put on LinkedIn, which I think is a really good sociological study of those three parts of the world. That, that, that's a, that's a, if I were to guess that would happen, that's what I'd guess happened. I, I should shut up because the podcast is really long. This was a long one, but it's a great discussion in how learning team happens. And it's a, it's a deep dive. People are thinking about this now really academically, quite theoretically. And that's great. That only makes it better. Thanks for your time, you guys. Learn as much as you can every day. Have as much fun as you can squeeze into a bag. And for goodness sakes, you guys, thanks for listening and be safe.